0: Alright, fellow fact checkers, we've got a brand new sponsor and I am excited to promote this product. It's Fox & Sons Coffee. Now, Fox & Sons Coffee is a family-owned and operated small business selling whole bean, organically roasted, amazingly good coffee. On their website, Steve, the company's founder, describes how his love of coffee started with special Saturdays with his dad when he was growing up. Steve wants to share his love of coffee with you and the entrepreneurial spirit with his sons. Check out the website, foxinsons.com and take a look at their best offer. A monthly subscription for three bags of coffee with free shipping for $38.89. Also, Steve's been on the show. He's a friend of the show. He follows us on the morning after as well as here on Fact Check This Podcast. Steve is a great dude, great company to support. So go check out Fox & Sons Coffee and get your morning started off right with a bag of delicious Fox & Sons Coffee. Let's start the show.
1: Yes, and finally getting around with Adam Patrick to talking about Buddy Jesus, American Christianity. I think we're going to throw some uh, Christian nationalism in there and probably even talk about some of the history of Christianity and how we got to this point to begin with. So, uh, Adam, what have you been up to lately? It's uh, It's been, a, I'm, I think, right at a year since the uh, last time I had you on.
2: Yeah, it's um, probably it's been, been. <clears throat> right about a year since uh, I put out my own stuff. <laughs> So, <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot been going on. We, um, you know, we bought a house here in Southern Connecticut and uh, I left the restaurant business. So. There, I've been focusing a lot more on just being home and I kind of ran out of stuff to talk about. on <laughs> You're talking over me. So no one's talking anything <laughs> over anyone. Um, I think I think I kind of solved the problem <laughs> with the whole libertarianism thing. And it's really for me the last year just been about sort of getting back in touch with my Christian roots from when I grew up, um, and and sort of squaring that circle. So, yeah, I mean uh, that was a lofty introduction for some stuff the history of Christianity. I guess we're gonna be here probably until next week, uh, talking <laughs> talking about that. But yeah, and maybe we'll throw a little Kanye in there too. Maybe a little Kyrie Irving.
1: The, there has been a there's been a lot of interesting stuff going on just in the news in general, and and there are religious connotations to a lot of what's going on because it is um everything kind of ties back to religion in one way or another whether it's ours or somebody else's and 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 i think i think that might actually be a good a good jumping off point because mm. with christian nationality uh we can kind of jump right in on that because i i, I do think in some ways Having a solid founding of faith and morals is a good basis for society, mm. but I don't particularly like when a religion itself is in charge of of that for your political structure um, and you see that with Judaism, you see that with uh, a lot of the the Muslim countries and and even throughout history you've seen that uh, where Christianity was really kind of in charge of the political structure of things. So let's kind of start. Let's kind of start with that, and we can kind of go from there. What's what are some of your thoughts on uh, Christian nationalism as it's being kind of played in in the media?
2: Sure. Well, it's it's interesting because I don't know what an individual means when they say they're a Christian nationalist. Right. There's fifty thousand different Protestant denominations, and depending on which person you're talking to. You know, are they are they towing a particular line of their particular church or denomination? And sometimes, if I see it on Facebook, I have to really scroll through the content that individuals sort of providing to me and kind of figure out where it's coming from. Um, And like many things in Protestantism, uh, as a general catch all, um, it isn't the same across the board. It's it's and and it it can sound to somebody coming from an Orthodox Christian understanding, or even a Roman Catholic understanding, almost agreeable, right? Like the idea that you just put forward a society based in Christian morality. I mean, it's supposed to be this one, obviously it, it isn't. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Roman Empire, for example, the whole the, whole, the whole Holy Roman Empire, uh, but most specifically the Byzantine Empire after after Rome falls. I mean, that's that's probably the greatest shining achievement of Christian government, right? And Maybe if we just go back to that and not like literally go back, but if we just mentally go back to that and, and envision what that is. That's <clears throat> what's written all over, all over the Bible, specifically about four dozen times in the Old Testament and enough in specifically like uh, Paul's epistles um, is submission to authority. It's all over. this is like a commandment, right? Submission to authority. Honor your father and your mother. You're the image of your father and your mother. You're, human beings are the image of God. And, and Paul um, continues that tradition, right? He doesn't create Christianity out of thin air like some people think. He just continues doing what Second Temple Jews were always doing in that particular group, right? And what he says is what I would want to hear when I hear somebody say Christian nationalism, which is God creates authority on earth, and that authority is held accountable For what they do with their power if they're an evil authority then there's a chance for repentance and if no repentance then they don't enter the kingdom of heaven and if they're a a good and just and kind ruler who follows in the image of god then they're rewarded right so depending on your view of somebody like the emperor justinian right in the seventh century or sixth century um versus the pope right versus um the president right we can kind of start to dissect what we what we really mean by that, and it, it in Isaiah specifically. I'll say it's Isaiah six, maybe verse five or six. I'm picking that off the top of my head. Um, and and really in like Judges, right, the book of Judges, God is basically telling the people, um, don't choose your own ruler. I will choose your ruler. I will choose the person who who judges who rules. They, they want a king. He doesn't. He gives them a king anyway, even though God doesn't want to get give them a king. And he decides who the person in charge is. Um, we've gotten very accustomed in this Puritanical Protestant sort of deist slash Thomas Jefferson kind of Gnostic mishmash of the United States of America. You know this Enlightenment idea of democracy and and, and whatever the heck that means. Um, I I don't know if like orthodox christianity knows what to do with that really yet i don't it's very interesting like yeah we'll pray for the president right but i don't know about you I, i mean obviously nothing happens in this world from a christian perspective nothing happens unless god wants it to happen so do we look at biden like he's the emperor justinian just a really really bad version of it um you can see when, when people start electing their own rulers that it just sort of degrades over time. And at least with a king, you know, you can get rid of the king and have another king. I mean, not kill the king like the, you know, like the Puritans did, Cromwell and all that, right? That's not, that's not good. Um, but that's what I would like to think of when I hear the word Christian nationalism. What I think is meant by it is something like you mentioned with, um, like a Muslim caliphate, but the Christian version. Right, And and the problem with that (laughs) is, you know, the emperors were Orthodox Christians, right? This new thing would be like, I don't know, Lutheranism, I guess, like the magisterial reformation when basically they bound Lutheranism to the state, Calvinism to the state to kind of back it and push it forward and kind of advance against Roman Catholicism, which of course carries the body count of how many tens of billions of people throughout history. So I don't know, that's the best way to go about it. But in addition to that, and just to kind of bring it full circle, um, one thing that makes me really nervous about that is it's very embroiled within the democratic process. And it's also it seems to be pushing a lot of punishment and retribution in the human world onto people. So the very same people who are calling for a Christian government or a Christian backed values government, right? Are the same people that want to like murder those who have murdered others. Right. And, and I just can't like square that circle exactly. And it seems to me too, a lot of them are very new to Christianity, right? Like new to it. Like I, I'm new to the Orthodox tradition specifically. But what I found for myself is that it just gave me all of the things I was looking for 30 years ago in Roman Catholicism and couldn't find. So they're not new to me. I just discovered there is a place for those ideas, right, in the other half of the world. So, yeah, I don't know. That's a long-winded way to say that I'm not really sure what it is these folks are looking for. I think they're, they're noticing a degradation of society, um, and they don't really know what they want to go back to, whether it's the 1950s or the 1920s. or but It seems like they want to go back to something very recent. Like, the nuclear family, you know, dad goes to the factory, mom cooks the dinner, the kids are in bed by nine, Halloween is evil, right? Like, that seems to be their kind of conception. Of They're looking for those good old days. Yeah, the good old days. <laughs> so, <clears throat> what, what's a lot easier is just to go to the scripture and do that, right? Like, that's what you would do. And then what I think would evolve out of that is some sort of a monarchy, right? It would be some sort of a top-down hierarchical monarchy. Um, in the image of God, I think that would be, if I'm going to say, quote unquote, Christian nationalism, but that's not what I'm seeing. What I'm seeing is a mishmash of a bunch of garbage and really bad biblical interpretations.
1: So like, like what you were talking about with which denomination is it and and how do each denomination go about things. Even now you're seeing within each denomination, there are huge differences and, and even big schisms that are opening up. Uh, I was raised Methodist. Right now, the Methodist Church is going through a massive schism where the United Methodist Church and the Global Methodist Church are going through a full on split. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: I was I worked a retreat last weekend, and that was a big thing that everybody there was talking about, because most of them attend a Methodist Church was is your church disaffiliating from the United Methodist Church or are they staying? And it's creating huge turmoil within the Methodist denomination you've seen a similar thing that happened within the presbyterian church a few years ago and mm-hmm. it's continued out not quite as um not quite with the same level of animosity but it's still happening even today in the presbyterian church where there is really a big divide going on the southern baptist convention has been largely kind of insulated from that but mm-hmm. for anybody who follows the southern baptist convention year over year it's a thing that is building towards more progressivism and has the potential to become more of a prevalent thing in the next two to five years uh you know you even see it in the the catholic church you have those who are very like traditional orthodox type catholics versus the like the modern or the the current pope and the more progressive type of catholicism so like what does christian nationalism look like there's not you. You couldn't nail that down, even if you did say, "Okay, it's just going to be the Methodist running things, or it's just going to mm. be the Southern Baptist running things." What's that look like? How does right. that? And and I think, I think that um kind of bastardization of power goes back to that post-Rome when the Roman Catholic Church was kind of the ruling sect of europe the once the catholic church stopped being based on paul and running thing or and doing things for the right reason and became the kind of central power structure power has a tendency to corrupt even even in the most uh, noble of mm. intents. and the catholic church became that like it was using its influence and its power to further its influence and power not to further the kingdom of god so every time power and rulership becomes a key focus of religion then it becomes a tainted thing and it starts to it starts to become power for the sake of power not power hmm. for the sake of furthering god's kingdom
2: Yeah, so that's a good point. Uh, I'm not going to go too hard on the Roman Catholic Church, especially around the time of the fall of Rome, like around the time that Augustine is writing, I'm sorry, St. Augustine is writing the uh, City of God, right? Because something had to fill that power vacuum. And it was better that the Roman Catholic Church did it than like somebody worshiping Baal, right? I mean, that was a better occurrence. And it's true that the Catholic Church really did help build Western civilization. Um, that goes off the rails pretty quickly, <laughs> right? When you start getting into bringing all of this Hellenistic ideas of reason and logic, you know, in, into the church and, and the scholastic tradition that kind of culminates in, in Thomas Aquinas just going completely off the rails, which, of course, turns into the Protestant, right? The, the whole, that whole idea of bringing human reason into sort of break down the sentence structure and the meaning and you start materializing everything. And of course, because the Roman Catholic Church was so powerful, uh, there's, like you said, all these abuses, and these abuses are what Luther grasps onto, or Calvin, or Zwingli, or Melanchthon, any of these, any of these reformers, right? And they're they're right to to notice that, uh, you know, abstraction, that like messing up <clears throat> of what the church is supposed to do, and to react against it. And they're they're just trying to be good Catholics, but by that by that time. The Roman Catholic Church had gone gone so far off the rails, they didn't they were reacting in the moment. They didn't even have the tools to know how to get back. It's not like they didn't read the church fathers or try to understand this stuff, but a lot of that stuff wasn't around. Right. And they it wasn't until a couple decades later that there was even a Protestant outreach to the Orthodox Church, which, if you want, I can send you the book that has the letters back and forth between the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Protestant reformers. That they're trying to like work out. Because the Protestants find the Orthodox Church, right? And they're like, oh, well, you guys seem like you kind of got it all together over there. Like, well, l- let us let me tell you what we're doing over here. And it basically ends with the patriarch of Constantinople being like, yeah, we don't want anything to do with any of that. <laughs> hey, I have no idea what you're talking about kind of thing. Um, So it, I I do have a little bit of sympathy for, for Luther with what he was dealing with. But um, it's 2022 and we have the Internet. So. The way I look at it, it's there's really no excuse to be a Protestant anymore. And no offense to you, right? Like, because you are. (laughs) Hey, but uh, we're holding on to like 500 years of just really bad arguments. And now we know that. And then Luther, of course, in his not that you're a Lutheran, but of course, in his later decades also goes completely off the rails. And you can draw a straight line from his book on the Jews and all their lies directly to Adolf Hitler. Right. Like that's the Christianity that the Nazis pick up on specifically that that Christianity. Right. So when you start getting things like your own personal interpretation of the Bible or, you know, you start putting that weight on your shoulders, then like you said, there's what is Christian nationalism? It's really just you worshiping you and then trying to promote physical human in this world values that are kind of based on Christianity, which is sort of like what deism is. Right. Thomas Jefferson style you know, re- republic democracy is, right? He didn't care about God at all, right? But you still have this supernatural element in the Declaration of Independence to kind of like harken back to a sort of a throwaway. Just use it as language to justify whatever you're doing. Um, <clears throat> really, I think what, what Christians, they don't have to become Orthodox Christians, right? What, what I think people should do or what I try to do is, you know, work on myself, work on my family and work on my community and uh, not have these lofty ambitions to like run the country, right? Like, or elect someone else to run the country, you know, like that. Why would, as a Christian, why would I be concerned with that? that? That seems like a very strange place to put my values in, right? When I'm a sinful person who can barely, barely be a Christian, you know, two seconds out of the day before I get angry at somebody on the road or, Say something snippy to somebody or swear when I shouldn't or have too much beer when I, right? Like, there's so much for me to work on. I'm going to like vote for Ron DeSantis to implement a Christian values system throughout. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and our own communities, like, I, I don't even know all my neighbors. I haven't even met everybody in the church I go to. So, you know, I think that, you know, and, and that's sort of where. To kind of bring this term up against, I think sort of where the quote unquote post-libertarian kind of movement went. We're trying to find that sort of um, Hoppian covenant community kind of idea. But the problem is without actual Christianity holding that community together, it just becomes a right wing violence echo chamber. Right. It, it's, it just becomes this bastion of like continuing to point out all the evil that evil people are doing. But then like putting them all in a, in, a, in, a, in a, you know, in a gas chamber and killing them. <laughs> right? like that's not like, hold on. You got you, you identified the problem, right? Like the far left is is demon possessed. Like we're all in agreement on that. Um, but Christianity says you're supposed to love those people. And, you know, just to, to really annoy everybody that's going to be listening to this. Um, if Adolf Hitler repented. An hour before he died and truly meant it. He's going to go to heaven right? That's what Christianity is. It's loving your neighbor. It's loving people that hate you, loving people that want to see you die, right? So, and I don't mean to preach this. Like, I do it, right? Like, I'm looking at the same articles on social media. Everybody else is about the amnesty that girl writes in The Atlantic, right? And I'm furious, man. Like, I I don't know. I, I met a lot of y'all during the COVID thing, but of my in-person social group, was probably the first person to be like this is a religion this is evil these people are going to destroy the world and they want you dead and i think the reason i found yourself piquinones buck like is because i found you guys were it, seeing the same thing i was seeing the same way i was seeing it right but if we even now i uh, see that amnesty thing and i want to strangle that one like you think about all of the all of the human beings who <sighs> i mean i feel bad for anyone who got sick and died of covid even just got sick it's you know it's an awful thing to get sick with but people the, the, they treated human beings as objects to be manipulated for their own political gain mean, people watched their or couldn't even see their loved ones you know in the hospital they couldn't even go to funerals we broke apart communities and families and destroyed relationships and the reason I think that affects me so much and and, and hopefully everybody else is because we don't want to see hate and violence and destruction and evil in the world. We 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 saw people who couldn't go to the funeral, couldn't see their loved ones in the hospital. And it made me cry, it made me sad. Right. I, I wanted love for them. So I can't now look at the people who who did that and not try to love them too. But it's hard. I'm not gonna say that's easy to do. There's vengeance and anger. And you know, I, I you you might have been scrappy when you were younger. Maybe you are now. I mean, I've been in a lot of fights in my life. Like I have a good anger issue, right? Like you want to grab those people and just start pounded on them but that's not that's the struggle right that's what as christians we're, we're not called to do that we're called to forgive people the problem is of course uh they don't actually want to be forgiven as that meme that went up they're actually just forgiving themselves publicly so what do you do with that situation from a christian point of view well god will judge them right god will judge them it's not up to me to judge them i mean i can comment on them i can i can because i love them i can tell them that they're living an evil way and try to help them come to repentance, so that they can they can you know j- become justified in the end, right? But ultimately, it's God that's going to make that decision. It's not up to me. So I think that's just the perspective that we have to take as Christians. We can't be um, we can't be harboring this hate because then we're no better than those people. We're letting them corrupt us, right? We're letting their demonic possession into our lives, and that's just going to be destructive for us.
1: It's interesting that you brought up covenant community type of stuff, that was something, so I did an episode a couple months ago where we kind of focused on the Christian nationalism idea, and that's kind of where I go back to it is, yeah, I don't want to see Christian nationalism on a national stage so much as it needs to be focused on communities. It needs to be, and, and if it's a Christian community or a different faith-based community, like that's where that's where we get the most value out of the ideas and the and the principles and the morals of what we're being taught in the bible and and through our faith and through all of our reading and stuff is you know it's taking care of yourself getting yourself right with god getting your family right with god and then you work that out to your community so yeah if you do know everybody in your community and you have a tight-knit community and you're all working towards the same thing I we can all be working towards the same thing here in my little middle of the nowhere uh, community that we have, just like the, the one, you know, five miles down the road, they're a little bit different, but we all kind of align on similar things. Like we can have values that we, that we get together on and that we agree on and, and having it within communities and our community can be aligned with a, a good muslim community in like in the city uh you know 10 15 miles away from here we can and we can get along and it does there doesn't have to be animosity because we are all faith based and we have to some extent similar morals and that's where i think what we want to see from a christian nationalism type of perspective is we want to see those like the acknowledgement and understanding of right and wrong kind of be aligned, that, that we do want to kind of get rid of the subversive elements that deteriorate and corrupt our society. Like, that's that's where it could be functional and work. And, and if those people want to go and have their own society, and have their own community, cool. We just may not interact with their community
2: yeah well i mean th- there's a lot of libertarianism in that right <laughs> i mean that there's a lot of and and to be totally fair i mean i i've i've known a few people from the uh, more conservative wing of the methodist church and um you know the 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 wesleyan kind of ideas that come in there uh, some of that's very congruent with orthodoxy too by the way i mean especially like the all go out in the field preach kind of origins of it um
1: it's why i, sp- I am still more or less Methodist, I don't really, uh, I'm not, we're currently looking for a new church and we may find a a Methodist church, but it's going to be one of the Wesleyan type of Methodist churches. It's definitely not going to be a, a newer, right. like United Methodist church. Uh, there, It's probably going to be a church that disaffiliates when everything is said and done. Like that's, that's more the, that's more what I'm looking for out of a, my organized religion, so to right. speak.
2: Uh, yeah, I think that's good. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, um, and it's it's really hard with Protestantism to make the make these generalizations, but um, because because I don't I didn't grow didn't grow up in that, so I didn't have that kind of like pick and choose and break off and do this stuff, right? So, um, I think at ultimately at the end of the day, the, the church, the literal building, right, is the center of your the community. That's how it's sort of supposed to be, um, and so whatever name that takes right? Whether it's the United Methodist, the Disunited Methodist, the Vanilla Method, I don't know, whatever. Like, it doesn't really matter as long as within that community, that's the thing that's holding it together, is is Christian faith holding it together. Because, I don't know, again, various strains of Protestantism feel differently about this, but from an Orthodox Christian perspective, um, we don't, I can't tell a Methodist that they're going to hell. I don't know. You know, (laughs) Right. There's human beings don't judge other human beings in a condemnation type of way. Right. I can't walk up to somebody on the street and be like, you're doing something evil. You're going to hell. That's not how it works. Right. Like for all I know, that person's going straight to heaven and I'm going straight the other direction. <laughs> right. So that's why we don't do that. Um, so it, to to the point about the, the Muslim community and, and such, because I think this is important. Um, I think individual human beings like I'm friends with. People of the Is- Islamic faith and Jewish faith, right? And you know, no, no pagans anymore. Like no literal pagans anymore. I've kind of gotten rid of that. But <laughs> if you're a witch, we're not like cool, right? But um, I think individual human beings can can kind of coexist together. Like I can go with somebody who's a Muslim and somebody who's from the Jewish faith to like a food drive, and we can work together to feed homeless people. But we can't worship together, right? We don't worship the same God. So there needs to be a line. This is where I I get a little nervous with the libertarian thing, like the live and let live. Because from a Christian point of view, they're not going to make it, right? (laughs) Like, they're probably not, unless they somehow repent and turn to Christianity before they die, right? So I'm not somebody who evangelizes. I'm not going to go out and try to make people Christian, because like I said, I have enough work to do on my own. Um, But we're, we're not actually called to sort of live and let live. We're not. Right. Like, so that's that's the kind of dis. not saying you're disconnecting, but the kind of general disconnect between libertarianism and Christianity is like, no, we love people and we don't want that to happen to them when they when their physical body dies. So if we ignore that, that portion and we don't talk to them, then even if we just talk to them out of love for them as a human being, but with a Christian perspective, and I'm sure they're thinking, well, no, they're not actually thinking the same thing. So, yeah, I was gonna say maybe they're also trying to come at it from love, but that's not really how it works. Um, And who knows, for most Jewish people don't even believe in an afterlife, depending on which denomination you're in or whatever. So, I mean, that yeah, from a Christian perspective. So I think we just have to be a little bit careful with the live and let live thing, um, because living and let living is not like really Christianity, right? We're supposed to be loving people so much. We're bringing them to Christ. But I don't want to do that in such a way that I'm annoying people like the guy with the A-frame that says the end is nigh outside of the football stadium when I'm going to see the Giants play. It's like, all right, buddy, you're just you're just really annoying now. Or the guy who stops you in the mall, right, when you're trying to buy your sneakers or something. And he's like, oh, you, you, want, to, you want to stop? Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior. And he's handing you the little track. Like, that's just annoying. No one's going to be evangelized that way. But by living a Christian life, by being an example, by repenting every day by showing our faults by not accepting praise but always accepting criticism right by living that way we try to be try mostly fail but try to be an example for other people to see that's a good way of evangelizing to those communities without beating them to death with information right because muslims and jews on in mass have a lot more knowledge about their religions than most christians do about christianity so that's not an argument people should be jumping into like half assed. Right. So, um, and then another thing I wanted to point out, I just got it down a note that I didn't mention when we were talking about the Roman Catholic Church kind of creating Western civilization. Um, we were talking about power. And I think one of the things that's very um, organically true about orthodoxy is yes, the Byzantine Empire ruled Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe and Asia. Right. But It fell to the Ottoman Turks in 1453 and was ruled over by them for about 470 years, right? Until the early 1900s when the Turkish empire fell. That subjugation, right? Christianity does very well under subjugation. It keeps you humble, it keeps you struggling, it keeps you talking to God, it it preserves the faith. And uh, the reason I bring that up is because now that orthodoxy is sort of free to roam in the world and it's coming over into America, it is not immune to being taken over by the same demonic forces that have poisoned a lot of Western Christianity as well, right? It's not immune. And from my point of view, it's the last hope. It's the last pure, right, not recreated, but last pure strain of Christianity coming from the apostolic tradition. If that gets assaulted by the left, by progressivism, by this equality across everything, by women becoming priests and all of this stuff, like there's nothing coming behind that. And that makes me very, very nervous. So I just wanted to point out, I think that the reason that the the Orthodox tradition is so communal, it's so kind of uh, preserved is because it wasn't in charge. And I think they learned a valuable lesson from that, that they don't want to be in charge. Their job is to be at church, you know? But um, I did, for example, see... Um, uh, Russian Orthodox Church being built in I want to say it's Moscow, but I'll, I'll get you the link that, uh, that I linked to. Um, and they have um, icons of Stalin in the Orthodox Church, like along with Putin. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like you, you want to put the czar in there? I get it. I get that. Um, but Stalin, right? So like it's already the right wing version is creeping in <laughs> right to, to Christianity in that form. And I can see it. I can see it with, um, is it Metropolitan Kirill? I can't remember his title, but basically the the patriarch of of Russia, Kirill, who works very closely with Putin right now. Um, a lot of the stuff coming out of there is creepy too, right? It's very political based, very much so, and and that makes me nervous. So, um, I'm I'm not in any way trying to insinuate the Orthodox Church is like perfect in this case. It, it's not. It actually might be a little naive sometimes to to the creeping in of politics and, and things of this world. But it's it's the idea that Christianity is like the dominant force in the West right now is also one of the reasons that it's been corrupted so much. It doesn't do well in its pure form when it's in charge, because it's not supposed to be in charge.
1: I, I think that's a very important takeaway from if you look at just what is said throughout the Bible. It's not supposed to be in charge like it is supposed to be something that uh, supplements and kind of gives morality and 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 a good base to what is in charge but it's not supposed to be the thing that's in charge and talking about like some of the um, the orthodoxy being having the influences of progressivism seeing some creep or or on the other side the extreme like right wing type of creep in in that uh, I had a conversation with Mike Corbell a couple weeks ago, and he was talking a little bit about Mormonism and Mormonism is starting to see the progressive creep happening in Utah where things are starting to, to hit similar schisms as what you've seen in the Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church stuff like that like it's it, it is widespread and the the progressive creep uh throughout all of modern Christianity, not just in America is it's really a concerning thing. And it's, it's not something that I really know how you get around outside of, uh, outside of maybe very, I don't know if exclusive is the right word, but sort of segregated covenant community type things. Um,
2: let me throw this at you to that, to that point. Um, so I was talking to Buck Johnson, um, A couple of weeks ago i haven't put the the episode out yet i'm actually scheduled to talk talk to him again i think on monday um hopefully they won't drop at the same time that would be awkward but I, i was asking him um how much he thought the progressive reaction to christianity is a result of really bad conservative interpretation of scripture right so like that almost the the sort of 1950s sort of protestantism um and it's very creepy way of internalizing scripture um or even like the great awakenings we want to go back that far like how much of that are the are the progressives seeing and hearing and they're reacting to that in much the same way that luther is reacting to the pope being blasphemous right like selling indulgences is not for you know for money to build a, a cathedral is not like in the bible right that you're not supposed to do that so I and and of course his interpretation leads to however many tens of millions of people dying over the course of history. So I, I wonder how much that progressive view of the church um, is is a direct reaction of very bad conservative messaging. So I'm, I'm curious, do you think that you, you maybe see something like that? Because it's not that. I mean, I I don't know anyone in my personal life who's a total lunatic. And again, that's self-selection. I'm not looking for lunatics, right? But like, you know, of all the uh, gay people I know or, you know, whatever, right? They're all good, decent human beings, right? They're not, they don't know this stuff. So I, I'm wondering when I see people kind of, you know, the rabid, atheist, blue-haired, tie-dyed kind of person, you know, what are they even reacting to, right? I, 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 I can't, I can't imagine that they'd walk into like a worship service and not, be welcomed or not find something welcoming there so what is I mean are they just trying to attack everything all the time because they're just so demented or is there really something in the messaging that could be done differently to kind of self select them out on their own like there's no reason to attack it they just don't bother and then it gets preserved I don't know if that does that make sense
1: okay so yes I think that ties back to a piece I'd written on Substack, stack uh, calling a spade a spade and Quote a lot of scripture from Matthew where Jesus talks about when you're identifying sin and you call your brother and you tell him, like, look, this is what you're doing, and this is not good. And Mm -hmm. if he doesn't hear you, then you bring somebody else along with you and you talk to him about it. And if he still will will not hear you, then you bring him before the church. And as the church, you say, This is this is what's going on. We want you to repent and come back into the fold. And if he still won't hear you, then he is as a tax collector or a Gentile, and I think what that gets misconstrued as, and even mispracticed by uh, modern Christianity, is when somebody says, or you know, somebody will not repent of whatever it is and won't come back into the fold, that you just basically treat them like an outcast and you shun them, and that's not what that scripture says. That at no point does Jesus ever treat tax collectors or Gentiles as if they're some lesser human. He doesn't, he doesn't treat them poorly. You still treat them with love and respect and honor. Like they are still human beings. We still want to see them in the kingdom of God when we all get to that point, but they just can't be a part of your covenant community anymore you have mm-hmm. to you have to have that layer of separation and so you get that on both sides like you get the you get the incredibly aggressive conservative version of christianity that's just like we're done with you we don't want anything to do with you ever again bye but then you also get the the equal and opposite reaction of that with the more progressive progressive form of christianity where it's like well we have to let these people in we can't make them not feel loved and then you allow that to become a subversive element within your faith that that it deteriorates the the purpose of the faith so like you have to the line has to be drawn but the line is drawn it you still love them they're still your fellow human being you can't dehumanize them because they aren't aligned but you also can't allow them in where that it becomes subversive in your faith. And I don't think either side of Christianity be it the more progressive or the more conservative does a good job of finding that middle where you still treat human beings like human beings.
2: And right. I don't, I don't really both, know where
1: the solution is on that. They're
2: they're both very interesting. They're, you're right. They're they're both very interesting western interpretations, right, where it's it's um we've almost made in in America specifically we we've, we've made being a Christian too easy. Right. You can watch the service or whatever you call it on television. Or if you go to, you know, for example, the local non-denominational, it's um, a band does a song, a guy talks for 40 minutes, they do a song and then you go home. Right. It's like very theater. It's like a great big screen TV. Right. And it's very easy. It's very digestible. And it's also like you're saved. So basically, you're just going to wait around till you die and then you're going to go to heaven. Right. It's very, very easy. Right. Because we're still caught up in this faith works nonsense. I, I think, you know, so maybe it's that it just becomes so easy to be a Christian that people get kind of bored with it and then they start making all the mistakes that you're making. Because, I mean, really, the the image of knowing kind of the middle ground is like, well, if somebody's shooting up heroin and they're, you know, they're slowly killing themselves, it's not love to give them heroin so they'll feel better. Right. But it's probably also not love to remove heroin so much that they die, right? Like there's a there's a middle or you don't don't want to be giving, you know, every single dollar you have to a homeless person who's ripping it up and throwing it in the trash. That's not helping them, right? Like just doing this thing, it's very difficult to know in the moment. I was talking to my girlfriend about this. It's very difficult to know in the moment what if what you're doing to help somebody is actually helping or hurting them, right? And so the ultimate goal is to love them and help them and bring them to repentance and bring them to Christ. And to do that for yourself as well. You have, obviously you have to continue to bring yourself to Christ and continue to repent yourself. It's a lot of work to do that, right? It's, it, it's, it's a lot of work to say, to get to know every individual in your church so much that you can have that relationship to be able to, it's a lot of work. Nobody wants to do that. They want to go to church, come home, watch football, right? Right. <laughs> Or watch it on TV because I'm a little, you know, a little hungover from last night. I don't feel like driving all the way there. I could just turn on Elevation Worship, but I could watch it on TV while I'm making brownies, right? Like, and um, that ends up going down down that road. But the the image of kind of the cup of iniquity being full and somebody having to be excommunicated. I mean, it's all over the all over the New Testament and the Old Old Testament, but really in the New Testament, like you, you love somebody so much you have to let them go. And that's the last ditch effort. You have to give them to the devil so that they can come back, right? Let somebody go. If you love them, if they love you, they'll come back kind of thing. Like that's the last ditch effort out of love. And what you get a lot of people who want to, you know, the God of the Old Testament is a, is a merciless, hateful, destructive God. And the God of the New Testament just wants to cuddle your babies, pet your puppies, right? It's, it's, um, it's not that at all, right? As, as I'm sure you know, it's the, the cup of iniquity. Uh, metaphor is very important it's god has mercy yahweh the god of israel has mercy that's what christianity is 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 israel right has so much mercy that he will wait as long as possible for people to repent but there comes a time when he has to do something because the scale has tipped to where if he doesn't do something he's not showing mercy for the victims and as human beings, we image that on a daily basis. And we don't even realize we're doing it. And that, that is, the, is the distinctive sort of Christian struggle is kind of knowing what to do in the moment. When we compartmentalize our Christianity, we put it in a little box over here. And then we have our politics over here and we have our economics over here and our family over here. It's very, you know, it's very easy. Um, I've found that if somebody is calling themselves a Christian and they have a very, very easy life, they're probably doing it wrong, right? It, it should be a struggle. It should be difficult to know what to do in these circumstances. Um, well, and that's true, the that's right? the
1: idea of the the prosperity gospel, mm. buddy Jesus type of Christianity that we see, especially in the West, is it is easy. And so, if you just believe and you you're a good person, you do the things that make you happy, then God's going to take care of you, and He just wants you to be happy and have the best things for you in life. And there's no there's no skin in the game in that there's no there's no commitment to actually putting in the work in that type of Christianity. It's all about just like, sit back and reap the rewards of this amazing, wonderful, good God who doesn't have any expectation of you other than just do what makes you happy and Hmm. be a moderately not terrible person.
2: Well, that's a good point, because the ultimate end of the prosperity gospel is your destruction. Right, the prosperity gospel will lead to your destruction, and that's not love. And also, there's what 18 million people that view that actually go and view Joel Olstein, right, on a on a day where he's doing a whatever he does, like 18 million people. that the amphitheater or whatever he's at is jam packed, right? If you go to my local Orthodox church, there's like 25 people in there, right, standing for three hours doing the rituals, do it. Per, Participating in the liturgy, singing the right, chanting, going through all this, which which would be just like, well, difficult to keep your attention probably if you're a modern modern day American and make sure you wear comfortable shoes if you go to an Orthodox church, but no sneakers. But like when you have 18 million people joining in, that's a good indication that what you're hearing is probably wrong, and it's probably going to destroy you, right? Because it's not. I mean, Christianity is not like on its face. A very attractive value proposition (laughs) proposition right like struggle repent sin struggle repent sin struggle repent like uh, you know i don't i wouldn't say worry but like constantly be aware of your surroundings act a certain way it's not easy so when it's made easy figure it's probably going to destroy you
1: yeah the buddy jesus thing is you know don't don't say anything bad about anybody, just do what makes you happy. Jesus just wants to love you and wants you to be happy. And that's not, that's not Jesus of any of the testaments. And,
2: uh, and it's not helpful. It's, it's, it's destroy. It's going to destroy people really in the end by, if you're seeing someone destroy themselves and you just say, well, take it the other way too. You just say, well, you're not, you're not, uh, praying hard enough (laughs) or something. Right. The other, the opposite of the prosperity gospel is, well, you got cancer. Um, you, you must have sinned, right? Right. That's the opposing view. That's also incredibly destructive.
1: (laughs) Right. So, So like when the, when the, the woman who was caught in a, caught in adultery was brought before Jesus and he called on, you know, whoever, uh, is without sin, cast the first stone and everybody left and it's just her. At the end of that conversation, Jesus doesn't say, well, they're all sinners, too. You're good to go. Have a have a nice life. He tells her, don't do it anymore. Like, that's the that's the thing that the gospel, that the prosperity gospel really leaves out is there is no call to action. There is no call to personal reflection and change. It's just keep doing what you're doing because everybody else is just as bad as you are. And like, that's that's not. That's not Jesus.
2: Well, you'll, you'll notice who's who's um, distinctly absent from that event in the, in the gospel is is the man that is involved in the adultery is not in that event. And according to the law, according to the Torah, he's also supposed to be there. Right? They don't even know the Torah enough to follow it, to give the example in front of Christ at that time. Like they're just as lost as all the other times in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, where like, I don't know, for example, in Jeremiah, um, King Josiah actually reads Deuteronomy to the people, and then like five years later, they don't know how to follow the to- the Torah, right? It's like the same thing in that here here are people who are trying to make an object example of this woman, and they don't even know how to do it right. right It's really supposed like first of all, if there's a, there's all kinds of things in in the Torah about what could have happened in that situation but the man has to be there and he's not. So that's another like glaring example of Christ being like you guys can't even get this right. Like you're going to stone this woman and like you you can't even follow the the very law that you're stoning her for. <laughs> right? So, yeah, 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 good good job bringing that up.
1: So let's let's go into I guess a little bit more on that and the the modern western Christianity, the, the lack of really anything of substance that it is kind of devolved into. Uh, you see it, you see it through a lot of, a lot of, uh, Protestant denominations where you're seeing a lot of, uh, drag show and trans, uh, Communions and services and stuff like that. How is how is the Western Church aligning that type of behavior to Christianity or anything that even resembles Christianity? Is I, I'm I just I can't wrap my head around it. It's I mean that, that is the focal point of the the schism in the Methodist Church and. I just I, I'm not sure where that comes from, because that just seems like full degeneracy being painted under the broad stroke of it's OK. Love everybody.
2: Well, if, if I haven't already gotten you down to zero listeners to this episode, let me go ahead and just defend to everybody who's left. All right. Um, I, I don't exactly know what, quote unquote, Western Christianity is, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that I don't think it's really Christian. Right. It's it's mostly Puritanism and Gnosticism kind of melded together. And I mean, at, at the risk of sounding very simplistic here, the idea that each human being can interpret the word of God, like the liter not the word of God, W cap- capital W, but the scripture itself on their own without help has led to a lot of problems. A lot of problems. Because e- even like if I see okay, let me let me say it this way. One thing I never do, ever, 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 is quote a Bible verse to make a point, ever. And when I see somebody do that, it instantaneously makes me nervous. Because out of context, you can make any verse of the Bible mean anything you want. And that sort of tradition comes from, started with Martin Luther. And there was other people, you know, like Haas. Hess, Haas? Huss, Huss, before him, right? They called him a Hussite, right? So there were other reformers before Luther, but really he's the one that opens the floodgate of people being able to interpret logically on their own through this. That, it, it, that doesn't work when you when you do. That's not also not how we're taught to read, right? We're, Christianity is not an academic religion. Christianity, as it always was until the Middle Ages and still is in orthodoxy, is experiential. You experience in the community through ritual Christ. Right. That's what Christianity Christianity is not walking around with a Bible in your hand, picking out verses to people. (laughs) That's just not. But that's what it's become in the West. So everybody is interpreting things however they want with no spiritual guidance. And so the the, you know, trans woman, trans woman, the trans person who is, um, you know, doing story hour or whatever. Could very well pick a verse out that says you're supposed to love everybody. It's like, well, see, I'm loving it. We're loving everybody. Right. But that, but out of the context of the entire book that's in or the entire chapter or like the range of ideas that the human being is communicating through the Holy Spirit at that moment is completely lost. Right. So that, that's got to go. Like that whole idea of, of saying stuff like that's got to go. I mean, there was even a guy, oh, I didn't write it down, but somebody who I follow who, who is, um, He's, he's not Orthodox Christian, but a lot of the stuff he says is, is very like Jewish-based Christianity. It's a lot of Yahweh thrown in there. It's very, very close on paper. And he quoted something the other day that, oh, a house divided um, on itself. Remember when the, uh, the Pharisees say to Jesus, he's casting out demons. They say, you're casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub. I think it's Matthew 12, 22, I believe. Um, and he used the analogy of a house divided against itself as like the United States of America that that's the analogy he was pulling out of that. But that's not what Christ says. He says the devil and the demons don't fight each other. That's the point he's making. He's not making an analogy to a constitutional republic in 2022. Like it's, It's not a bad analogy to make to say that a nation state divided among itself can't stand. That's true. A nation state divided among itself can't stand. So it's not a dangerous misinterpretation, but that line of thinking is dangerous. The line that you can take anything out of context and make it mean something, even though in this particular instance, it it isn't dangerous. That line of thinking becomes dangerous. I've
1: seen that used to justify accepting of LGBT people in, in the faith and stuff like that. And into, um, and into, Being pastors and stuff like that, is they'll take like very specific lines and somehow they'll twist them and say that this was, this was a point where these people were possibly homosexual or Jesus never said anything about that or all these other things. It's like, okay, if you take each of these little lines that you're picking out just the, you know, five words of text, Mm -hmm. if you go and you read everything in the chapter before that and everything in the chapter after that, it completely throws your argument out the window. If you look at just the times, and everything that Jesus built his ministry around, like there's a reason he didn't talk about these things because there was no reason that he would. Mm-hmm. Because you knew what his beliefs were, you knew what the the uh, what the faith meant to him, and you knew that it, it it wasn't that he didn't talk about them because he was apathetic to it or he was okay with it. It's because if you knew anything about His religion, you knew it was a a non-point. There was no reason for him to talk about it because everybody would have known exactly what his thoughts were on
2: it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what the people who are doing that, and that's pretty much all Western Christians. That's pretty much what everyone does. We're taught to do that. That's how we see everything. What what they're doing is they're doing hermeneutics without doing the exegesis first, right? So if you don't know, they're not even actually probably, they probably have the Bible memorized, but they don't really understand what was happening at the moment of that that occurrence, or even why, like how it got there, like who literally put the pen to paper, you know, over time it evolved. Like they they don't have the exegesis down. What they're doing is they're taking their modern worldview and they're taking Christianity and they're conforming Christianity to their modern worldview rather than changing themselves to conform to Christianity. That's what they're doing. So they're not doing the exegesis they're jumping to the hermeneutics where they're trying to find a modern day analogy. So it's like the homily, right? Or I guess the sermon in in a Protestant, like that's hermeneutics, that's taking what actually happened, occurred and is being said in the Bible and applying it to a similar situation today. But taking something that occurred in the Bible, like the English words out (laughs) and talking about something that happened today that has nothing to do with what the occurrence means is dangerous. That's what happens, right? That's And just to make another point, um, At no point in the Torah or in the Bible are, does it say that homosexuals, for example, can't become part of the Christian church. What it, what it says is the acts you cannot perform and the thoughts you cannot have, right? So there's nothing, I mean, and you, you know this, but just for listeners, just to for the three people that are still left listening to me, I'm just going to piss them off now too, uh, is <laughs> um, the same prohibitions that are placed on homosexual people, are the same prohibitions that are placed on heterosexual people. They're literally the same thing, right? The only only thing that a homosexual couple can't do, that a heterosexual couple can do physically is make a baby through intercourse, which is the whole point of the whole thing of man and woman. So, heterosexual people can't have anal sex, right? Heterosexual people who are Christians are not supposed, you know what I mean? We're not supposed to look at porn. We're not supposed to covet our neighbor's wife, right? it's all the same so there's no like even though you'll see in the bible it will prohibit something like they'll say homosexuality homosexuality specifically as the word they're talking about the act if you go read it in the greek and hebrew that's what the word means it means the act of right <laughs> you know so that's also you're not supposed to do that as a heterosexual either so it there's no difference like if you Tend to lean if you're a guy and you tend to lean toward a romance, romantic ideas of another guy. It's it's not that you're somehow like not welcome. It's that don't do that. Just like if I start to have, you know, if I'm, you know, with my obviously with my girlfriend, right? And I see another chick walk by, don't do that. Don't look at her. Don't have thoughts about her. It's exactly the same rule, right? So that's another thing that gets confused. I think because people start reading the Torah, first, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, and they get to around like Exodus 22. And then there's a whole bunch of like genealogies and numbers and a whole bunch of like laws. And they're like, and then they don't really pay attention to what's being said there. So they don't really understand. And then again, they're taking their modern day, they're looking around, they're being like, oh, I have a bunch of money and uh, my job is really good and my family's tight. And I have all this. So they're taking Christianity and they're molding it to that. And they're not looking at it. And saying, well, Christianity is actually asking me, Christ is actually asking me to change, not into something I want to be. Because you can change from, you can change from one type of person into another type of person without changing into the type of person that Christ wants you to be. So you can do that change. It's just an incorrect change. And then you can be fooled into thinking it's a correct change. Right. And that, that is the same kind of idolatry of like the Tower of Babel or idolatry all over the old Testament is trying to take God and make him do what you want him to do or conform him to your life. Where obviously the opposite is true. You're supposed to change your life to do what God wants you to do. Right.
1: Well, and that that goes back to kind of the prosperity gospel buddy, Jesus stuff in that, like there is no call to action within Western Christianity. And that's, that's the whole point of everything you were talking about is that like, He says don't you know don't do that there's an there's an actual act of changing your behavior of changing kind of changing who you are and conforming it to god and who god wants you to be there it can't be a uh that's a bad thing but you'll just ask for forgiveness later it's you have to actually conform to god's will and and take changes within yourself to to be that person not to just keep going and hope that it works out.
2: And yeah. And, and then and then you won't want to do those things. Right. You just won't. <laughs> I mean, I, I I can't even tell you, man, what a different and more peaceful mindset I have now than I did in like late twenty nineteen as I started to break myself of basically the chains and baggage of libertarianism where the, it's it's always like, well, we have this free will and this choice and live and let live and don't hurt people and take their is, is like such a baggage burden. And it isn't even really like a free will, right? You're basically like a slave to your passions under libertarianism because you can do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting somebody else. And I'll be like, oh, so you could just slit your wrist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not hurting anybody else by slitting my wrist. Like, well, then you don't believe you have an eternal soul. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's a very destructive, anti-Christian way of living. And Western Christianity just has a libertarian, especially American, United States of America Christianity has a, that Puritan libertarian thing ingrained in it so heavily. We have to keep in mind the Puritans killed a king, right? And then a king who, for all of his faults, was trying like to end the slave trade, was trying to sort of decolonialize, right? And then Cromwell gets in there and basically just ramps all that stuff up again. And you know, so we have to get out of that. Like the Puritans weren't, sorry guys for Thanksgiving coming up, we're not trying to preserve religious freedom from, from persecution. They were religious zealots and political revolutionaries who were kicked out of England for killing a king. Like that's what they did, right? That's not the identity I'd want to have in my Christian backstory. So, oh, that's Facebook user. Interesting. What is that?
1: <laughs> S- somebody who didn't give uh, Streamyard access to show their name. But it's, it's cool. Sometimes it's tricky like that. But yeah, I mean, they make a good point. People don't come to church because they feel they can't change to meet the standards. Christianity says come to church and let God change you. And that's like it's a Mm. we're talking about like it's an act of change. You you're uh, it's Mike.
2: Well, so so, yeah. So I'm going to come at this from an Orthodox Christian perspective. So forgive me if this doesn't make sense to some people who maybe grew up in the Roman Catholic or, or the Protestant tradition. Right. Um. The Orthodox divine liturgy is like, is the thing that you do in Christianity. If you don't do that, there is nothing really else to do, (laughs) right? You, by doing, participating in that ritual, that is what Christianity always was. Like the the apostles didn't have a Bible, right? There, there was a gospel before there was ever a gospel according to anyone, right? Before there was the gospel according to St. John there was a divine liturgy happening in christian churches right church just means assembly in the old testament it, it's the same word ecclesia ecclesia in in the greek i don't remember the hebrew word when you see assembly in the old testament church is the same word right so the christian ritual of the liturgy is happening long before there's ever a quote unquote bible right and and they had you know the gospel book eventually with the four gospel accounts in it and they had the epistle book with all of paul's epistles in it and james jude peter revelation Those revelation didn't even come along in the east until like the 600s it was where it was accepted into the church so yeah the whole point is to participate in christianity by going to the liturgy i think father stephen de young said if all you do is go to the liturgical celebrations of the orthodox church then you will know everything you need to know to live your life as a christian you don't even ever have to pick up a bible just attend all of the ser- all the feast days all the fast days all the liturgical you know uh, celebrations that's all you, because that's what the liturgy is designed to do it's designed to teach you and work you through christianity for illiterate people right blind people people who you know 2000 years ago had no idea how to read you go and you experience and that's how you learn and you work through the entire new testament If you do all the dailies if you can find an orthodox church that still does daily services after covid you work through the entire new testament minus revelation over the course of 365 days that's all you need to do right so that that will change you by the very act of going what we don't have in america is the same liturgical experience even in the roman catholic Church, which is the closest approximation of a divine liturgy in the in the mass. It's still got watered down enough where it doesn't it's not experiential it feels like a duty or an obligation to go because Roman Catholicism has positioned itself as like the anti-punishment movement within Christianity and that's not what Christianity is. So people feel obligated to go. I grew up Roman Catholic so I'm going to speak from experience. A lot of people feel obligated to go to church. Like it's something you check off on the checklist. I've never met anybody who shows up to an Orthodox liturgy who is going through the motions while they're there because it's hard. It's hard to stand for that long. It's hard to watch the priest not talk to you in the Roman Catholic church. The priest faces you now since Vatican two um, basically as a lecturer. And then in, in pretty much every Protestant church, it's like literally just a sermon, maybe not in like high Anglican or something like that, or maybe some Methodist churches are still like, you know, version of the liturgy or mass that's going on or communion or something like that. Um, but basically the, the pastor or the priest or the Catholic priest is is staring at you, lecturing you. And so it could be a little bit more engaging. And that's why the Roman Catholic Church did that at Vatican II. They were trying to reach Protestants, essentially. Um, they'll admit that. That's what they were trying to do. In the divine liturgy, like half of the service, the priest isn't even, it's like mumbling to himself. <laughs> facing the altar not even looking at you so it's very different a very different experience it will change you it absolutely will change you it's like
1: the uh the retreat i worked over the weekend like i said it's primarily methodist based and a lot of the experience over the weekend is you're spending time not listening to somebody talk but just in reflection and in prayer and in having the experience of being there in the moment with the other people that are there and feeling what's going on not just listening to somebody talk like the the talks that you hear throughout the course of that weekend they're to help you build your faith but they are not what your faith is based on your faith is those experiences of being in touch with god and feeling his presence and feeling what's going on in that environment and in that atmosphere It's. Yeah, the modern, the modern Christianity thing is you go to hear a good sermon that gets you riled up. And that's not, that's not what Christianity was. You don't, you don't hear anything throughout Paul's epistles about these great sermons that were given by different pastors. You, it's, it's the community and it's the, the experience. It's the actual doing. That's what it's supposed to be. And we've lost touch with that. Yeah, the, there's time. a
2: lot in Western Christianity. There's and and I've seen this in Orthodoxy too, so I'm not letting them off the hook. Um, I've seen a lot of like quote unquote big names that are jumping around podcast circles who are like trained theologians, PhD Orthodox priests who m- have a semblance of this as well. But definitely in like the mega church thing, right? That that thing it becomes all about that human being. Like that human being sees themselves as the Apostle Paul when they're up there preaching, right? They're up there as the personality that everybody is supposed to be paying attention to. They're the big commanding personality. And there's, to me, there's no humility in that. It's all about them and not about the congregation, not about the people, not about Christ. The whole point of the, of the ritual, and, I'm, and, I, and I like the idea of going to retreats and doing things like that as a supplement, but having a weekly and daily and hourly ritual, um, it's something Islam has instilled very well in, in Muslims. I mean, how many times are you at a gas station or something and there's a, you know, Muslim praying on his knees off into the woods or something on a, on a, on a carpet that he brought with him? He had to pull off the side of the road and do it. Like, I don't see Christians doing stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, we're not called to do stuff like that. But in general, that's a huge dedication to something. Well, we are. You know? I mean, I mean, we're, yeah, not, well that, not, that, not literally, like no pulling the you know, we are on the road at three o'clock. You know what I mean? But yes. The Christian version of that, you don't see a lot of people doing that. It's like, well, once I get out of worship, whatever that means, worship service, once I get out of that, I basically just go about what I was doing as if I was an atheist all week long, right? So there, it, it's going to be very difficult to change people through seasonal retreats and things like that if you don't have a structure of your life. Like you get up in the morning, shower, brush your teeth, put deodorant on, put your clothes. That's a routine. That you make your coffee, drive to work. I go this way when there's traffic. I go this way when there's no traffic, right? It, it's everything we do is a ritual, but the ritual of worship, the ritual of going to a liturgy will change you. It will change your whole life and your whole routine. You'll start doing everything differently. And then as a product of that, you'll start living differently, expressing yourself differently, evangelizing differently. I think that ritual is important. Like if I have to, if I can't go to a liturgy, I will go to my girlfriend's church. It's a Protestant church. I will just do that. I have because I have to do something. Right. And the last couple of weeks, I haven't been to anything and it screwed my whole week up it. Like I, I wasn't feeling well, you know, the weekend we were supposed to talk and then I had to do a bunch of yard work last weekend and I just lost track of time on Saturday night and I just messed up and I couldn't. My whole like week is thrown off. I don't have the structure. Like I forget stuff. I start getting more irritable. You know, like it will it will change you. So that's whoever asked that question. I think that's the that, that's what I would say.
1: Let's kind of wind it down on that because there's a lot more we could go into with the history of it and stuff like that. But I think we really hit at Something that's really important in the conversation of modern Christianity is that it has stopped being an experiential and a action oriented thing. And it's become more of a, a thing you do out of duty. So, yeah, finding a way to in our own personal lives to start out with just to be more experiential and to be more action oriented in our faith and, and to take that out and to, to actually put it into practice, that's going to be, that's going to be at least step one in seeing something that might resemble a revival of sorts within, within American Christians.
2: Yeah, man, I, I think we covered a lot and um, yeah, that that probably would be, would be a good place to wrap. Cause getting into the history stuff, we could be here for, we could be here for a lot of hours, but um. Just for your for your listeners, uh, I do plan on actually having a show at some point. And uh, when I do, that show will be the age of information. And my my goal with the age of information is to as a layperson, as somebody who's not a trained theologian, but feel like I could hold my own right on biblical studies to try to explain what I believe Christianity is from the orthodox perspective and refer you to people who can actually help you um, through spiritual guidance, which I am not trained to do at all or qualified to do in any way, right? But to put out into the ether to an American audience from an American perspective, that's somebody who has gone through a lot of these changes to sort of say, lay out like, like kind of what we did right here. This is what Christianity has always been. This is what it is. This is what it isn't. Right. And, and to through the use of information, point out the places in history where these things happen and why they happen. So it will essentially turn out to be, as soon as I figure out how to do it, um, sort of a study of the history of the Bible, the spirituality of the Bible and the history of the Christian culture, Christendom period. Like what happened in 401 AD that caused this? What happened in 1276 or 1531? And, and, how are we going to draw parallels and lines to what we're seeing now? So when people hear me talk about the Puritans, they know they don't mean like the, with the buckle on the hat, sitting down to have Turkey with the native Americans or Indians or whatever, right. With the feather coming up, like they can just break themselves of those childish ideas and see like, okay, well this is what actually happened because now we have the internet 2022. So we have all the information. It just needs to be put in a place where people can access it quickly. So hopefully, um, through God, I'm, I'm going to be able to do that, and um, and I appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk to you. It's, this is really good. I think we got a lot of uh, we got a lot of information out there, and I'd love to have you on as well to to continue it at some point in the future. Absolutely,
1: let me know what you're wanting to talk about in particular. I like I really like getting into specific parts of history and stuff and digging into them and looking at looking at the context, looking at like what's going on at this point in history and why did this happen, and then what came out of that. And, like that's something that. Um, I don't think it gets enough attention. People just kind of take stuff on a, like a nameplate of, boom, this is what happened. Well, why? Uh, so yeah, mm-hmm. definitely looking forward to it. Thanks again for coming on, Adam. This has been great. Uh, looking forward to the Age of Information when that gets kicked off and rolling, and and looking forward to joining you to have to further the conversation and probably have you back on to to further it as well here.
2: Oh, thanks for having me on, man. I definitely a blast as always.
1: Yeah. Have a
0: good one, man. You too. Don't forget to head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check out our longest and most favorite sponsor, Carlos Vanessa Ablar and Paloma Verde CBD. Get all of your CBD needs and you get 10% off your order of $75 or more. Plus, anything over $75 is free shipping. So head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com to get all your CBD needs. Have a good week, everybody.